Well, I want to ask, when was the last time you were truly terrified about somebody that you love and their situation? And I mean, like, not like, ah, roller coaster terrified. I mean the kind of terror you feel when somebody that you love, like, is in mortal danger and you are 100% sure that there is nothing you can do about it. Uh, for me, it was Monday, February 10th, 2012, President's Day. Thank you, Google Photos, for reminding me what the day was. So the Irwin family was up in DC. We were enjoying a sunny, late winter day. It's doing some sightseeing with nine-year-old Abby, five-year-old Sean, almost two-year-old Nate. We walked down Pennsylvania Avenue strolled around the reflecting pool, we fed some ducks, and then we went over to the reflecting pool, and we did that, we went to the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it was a beautiful day, late winter, people were out, it was very crowded, it was fun, we took some photos. And then we said, hey, you know, we've lived here, how long have we lived in DC? We've never been to the Jefferson Memorial. Let's go over there, let's go to the Jefferson Memorial. We'll get a map. So we go over there, we're at the kiosk, we're talking to the guy, and we're making our plans, and I hear Sean's little voice say, where's Nate? Okay, so just absolute terror. He's not even two. There were literally thousands of people all around us, and I have no idea where my not quite two-year-old son is. So I'm just like cold, nauseous, sweating, right? Parents in the room. You know, you're judging me, but we've all had this happen, right? We've all almost lost our kids. We don't talk about it a lot because, you know, but it's happened. And so for one of the very few times in my adult life, like, I sprinted over to the reflecting pool. And as I'm running, and it wasn't for very long in retrospect. It was probably like 20 seconds, maybe. As I'm running, two things are happening. Thing number one is... Every possible terrible scenario that you think of in that situation when you can't find your kid is quickly running through my head like a movie. And the second thing that's happening is I'm just, I'm just saying, Lord, help. Like that's the best I could come up with again and again and again. Well, praise the Lord, he answered that prayer. Nate was petting a dog owned by a very young couple, no kids of their own in sight, most certainly judging me as a parent, but whatever. The Lord had heard me. And in his mercy, he had answered. And in that moment, like a, a, a terrible fear that I had about somebody that I loved, the Lord had heard me and he had answered. And all I could do, what could I do in that moment? What was the best? All I could do is, just, Lord, help. So did you come up with your, you know, nightmare terror scenario from somebody that, for somebody that you love? Uh, I hope you did, because that's going to put us in the right mental headspace to understand today's passage and the amazing drama that it presents us with. So this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. If you can turn there to Matthew chapter 15, um, you can see in your bulletin we'll be specifically in verses 21 to 28, but just while you're flipping there, you'll find that on page 870 if you're using the Pew Bible. Just a little context so we get a better understanding of what we're looking at here. So, so this gospel account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this was written by Matthew. And if you know your New Testament, Matthew is the tax collector whom Jesus had called as a disciple. He had later become one of the 12 apostles, the eyewitnesses to all that Jesus had taught and said and done. 
And one really clear focus of Matthew's gospel, one thing Matthew wants us to see super clearly is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the prophesied, the long-awaited son of David who would inaugurate God's kingdom on earth, who, as we thought about last Sunday, or two Sundays ago, would, would no, it was last Sunday, who would fulfill God's promise to Abraham. It was last Sunday. Who was going to bless the entire world. God was going to bless the entire world through this descendant singular of Abraham. And so our passage this morning is coming in a long section of narrative in which Matthew makes clear who Jesus is. And largely he's done that through focusing on Jesus' teachings, but also, and even more spectacularly, through Jesus' miracles. So in chapter 14, just just before our passage, Matthew's telling us about Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing many who were sick, just showing again and again that Not only was Jesus this Messiah, but he was more than a human king. He was God incarnate, come to save. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. So listen now as I read from Matthew chapter 15. I'll start in verse 21. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Well, praise the Lord for his word. Friends, this passage is such a vivid story. I I can just see it so well in my mind. I think they could make a really gripping movie out of this. I feel like, you know, you've got this loving but just terrified mother, the chosen one who's come to bring healing, and they meet. What is she going to say? What is he going to do in response? So there's a drama here for sure, but I think the central message Matthew is driving at here is pretty clear. And I don't know what you thought as you were looking at this. I think oftentimes people will look at this passage and they will focus on the woman and on her faith. Friends, I think what Matthew wants us to see here is who Jesus is and what he came to do. So this is going to be our central point this morning. Those of you that take notes, the central point for the whole passage is this. Humble faith in Jesus recognizes who he is and seeks mercy from him. Humble faith in Jesus recognizes who he is and seeks mercy from him. And to help us to unpack that central truth so we have a a better idea of what to do with it, I want to focus our attention on three facts about Jesus' identity that Matthew's obviously trying to highlight here. And those will be the three points of this morning's sermon, and I'll, I'll give them out as we go. So Christian brothers and sisters, as as we're going this morning in this story, Christians, you and I are the woman, and we are the disciples. So this morning, let's focus in on what we can learn here about our Savior and how he relates to us from what we can see here of his interaction with this woman and with his disciples. 
because I pray that we'll come to see even more clearly how merciful, how compassionate, how kind the Lord is to us in Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are glad you're here. I pray as we study this passage, you'll see how much you stand in need of the Lord's mercy this morning, and that you'll see you can only have that mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, let's dig in. So our first point this morning, talking about who is Jesus. Point number one, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. If you, if you want to understand what Matthew's showing us here about Jesus, just a little bit of background work. Look with me there at verse 21. So Jesus has left his home territory of Galilee, and he withdraws north to the area of Tyre and Sidon. It's important for us to know, friends, that these two cities were Gentile cities. What does that mean? It means they were inhabited by non-Israelites who did not know or worship the God of Israel. So, so these two cities are in an entire region filled with people descended from Israel's traditional enemies, people who were driven out of the land long ago by the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. So for an Orthodox Jew at the time, these two cities in the region around them, this was a region to be avoided because it was filled with spiritually unclean people. So why does Jesus decide to leave his own territory and go up there? Well, just before this passage, Jesus, if you look earlier in chapter 15, Jesus had just absolutely roasted the scribes and the Pharisees for their wrong views of cleanness and uncleanness. Jesus had taught and he made it clear that true uncleanness is not about what you eat, what you put into your body. Uncleanness is about what's already inside. It's about the human heart and its sinful, wicked desires. Well, the religious leadership didn't like what Jesus was teaching because in their minds, it, it contradicted the law of Moses and its rules related to ritual cleanness. And it also threatened their own status and their own positions of influence as Israel's teachers. So it's almost as though in this trip up north to these supposedly unclean Gentile lands, Jesus is, is just about to embody what he had been teaching. And then to make even more clear why Jesus was going to such a place, we meet this woman. And Matthew doesn't tell us too much about her, but he does tell us she's a Canaanite. So she's unclean in all the ways that I mentioned just a moment ago. And friends, don't miss that this was a Canaanite woman. A, a female. Friends, in that time and in that place, you know, a woman, like, charging up to a man, shouting at him in public, yelling at him, this was not a thing. This did not happen. In Israel at the time and in the larger Greco-Roman world, women were understood at that time, thought of as being inferior, really, in just about every way. So given her background, I'm sure she knew she was taking a risk by coming to Jesus in this way, crying out for his help. So Jesus is there, and she comes to him. Now, why, why did she do that? Well, if you look at verse 21, it tells us she, she came, and she kept crying out. Friends, we've got to picture this scene in our head. You know, Jesus and his disciples, they probably just recently walked into town. I'm sure they're tired, probably looking forward to sitting down, having something to drink, something to eat. And this woman comes running up, shouting at him. In the original language, it's a word like shrieking, like screaming urgently. 
And you can understand why. Look at verse 22. She had a daughter who was severely tormented by a demon. So this is a fallen angel under Satan's command. And the Greek language there that Matthew uses communicates just abject misery that this girl was living her life in. Friends, if you just skim the New Testament and read about the New Testament accounts of what demon possession looks like, it is a terrible thing to have to endure. There's shaking, screaming, fits that throw you to the floor, even into the fire, cutting yourselves, breaking any restraints put on you, beating the people around you, and it just doesn't end. So this poor girl's mother, friends, she was desperate. She, she had likely tried everything else that there was to try at this point, and nothing had helped. Her daughter was in torment. So she comes to Jesus. But notice she doesn't just jump immediately to asking Jesus to do something. Did you notice that? She addresses him first with certain titles. Look there again at verse 22. She calls Jesus Lord, son of David. So that word Lord there, that, that indicates that she understood that in some way this, this Gentile woman knew herself to be under Jesus' authority in some way. And then she uses the title Son of David, which means she understood Jesus to be this long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, who was going to reign on King David's throne forever, just as God had promised in 2 Samuel 7. This was the Messiah who was going to destroy God's enemies and who would inaugurate a reign of peace and justice on the earth forever. So bottom line, she comes to Jesus thinking, well, we don't know what exactly, but thinking that he would be able to do something to help her daughter and to end her torment. I wondered as I was meditating on this passage, maybe you were too, how did, how did a pagan Canaanite woman know all this about Jesus? Well, we know from Mark and Luke, from those other gospel accounts, that um, some entire in Sidon in those northern cities had actually come down to hear Jesus, to see him, and to see the miracles that he was performing. So perhaps they had then gone back and word had started to spread. That could be. But the fact that she believed these reports, friends, given where she was from, this, this woman likely had relatively little knowledge of the scriptures. But she did know about God's Messiah. She knew about the promised son of David. And she knew that he was supposedly going to come to rescue and to heal. And with that little knowledge of Jesus that she had, friends, she believed. And she didn't just believe in her head or inside, friends, we know she believed, because what did she do? She went to Jesus and she asked him for help. She didn't care about her personal dignity. She didn't care about Jesus' personal dignity. She didn't care about women's proper roles or any of that. She was desperate and she loved her daughter and she came to the one that she believed could help. So Christian brothers and sisters, we do want to see in this woman an example of the Lord's faithfulness in keeping his promise that he had made centuries before about his Messiah and how he was going to come to rescue and to save. And we also want to see his promises that he had made about his Messiah were also true in that they were not, the Messiah was not just going to come to save Israelites. 
The Messiah had been promised centuries before that he was going to come and save men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. Friends, we can talk later. I can give you the scriptures. But the Old Testament is clear on this. Now, the Israelites had not understood this. But God's word is clear. So, friends, see in this woman and Jesus' interaction with her an example of the Lord's grace and kindness in granting belief. Granting belief to someone who is outside, supposedly outside, of his care and concern. See the Lord's grace and kindness in granting faith to this really unlikely recipient, at least in the world's eyes. Because, friends, when we see that and when we acknowledge that and we praise the Lord for that, it brings him glory. And, friends, see yourself in this woman. See yourself in her and how Jesus is about to respond to her. See how God can reach even those that are really far away, even those that we think are too far away for the Lord to save. Friends, there may be those that you know that are not Christians, and you think somehow, well, no, sorry, Lord, I guess, no, they're too far. Friends, the Lord's arm is not too short. He can save anyone at any time. So friends, be encouraged. Remember, see yourself here, and see unbelieving friends here. The Lord is good. So just briefly there, first point about this woman's proclamation about the titles of Jesus. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. But that leads us to point two this morning. Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus also, we see here, is the great teacher. Jesus is the great teacher. This conversation here, friends, is amazing. Look at verse 22 again. Look at what the woman asked Jesus for. So she said the titles. Now, what does she ask for? Have mercy on me. So she, she knows the thing that she's asking Jesus for. She knows she doesn't deserve it. That's what mercy is. She's asking him for pity, for compassion. She's approaching the great son of David. She knows it's possible he may despise her. She knows she has nothing to give him in exchange, but she still cries out for the only thing she can, for mercy. And friends, I don't know about you, but I have always been really interested in Jesus' response here. If you read the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his typical response to such requests, he usually just immediately says yes. But this time, he ends up having kind of an odd conversation with this woman. Look again at verse 23. She asks for mercy, and at first he says, nothing. I mean, imagine you're this woman. You're casting yourself on this supposedly great man's mercy, and he just stares at you. Awkward? Maybe a little frightening? How do you, how do you take this? So first he says nothing. But the disciples pipe up, don't they? Verse 23, the disciples. Lord love them. Pretty obvious what they're thinking. Look at verse 23. Come on, man, woman, I'm tired. It's a 25-mile walk from Galilee to here. Can you please stop yelling? They just want Jesus to quickly give her what she wants and send her away because they're thinking about themselves. You know, a lot like you and I do. So when Jesus does speak, look there at verse 24, 
Just to be clear, when Jesus speaks in verse 24, he's responding to the disciples' request, not the woman's. But I'm sure he knows full well that the woman could hear him, too. And he wants to teach the woman, and he wants to teach the disciples. So next he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so friends, that's not literally true. As I was saying a moment ago, the Old Testament makes really clear the Messiah would not be the Savior for the Jews only. Right from the beginning, when the Lord chose Abraham. Remember Abraham from last week? When he chose Abraham out of a pagan land to be the progenitor of his people Israel. What does he tell Abraham? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's Genesis 12, 2 to 3. And then through Isaiah, even more clearly, in Isaiah speaking about his great servant, the Lord says this, quote, it is not enough for you to be my servant, uh, excuse me, it is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So friends, Jesus wasn't mistaken when he said, what he said to the woman. He was saying in front of his disciples and in front of this woman what they had most often been told, that the Messiah would be the savior of Israel, God's chosen people, and it is true that the Messiah was to come to Israel first. If you're familiar with the letter to the Romans, Paul wrote to the largely Gentile church in Rome. In chapter one, he says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But I bet when Jesus said he was sent only for Israel, the disciples were probably thinking, amen, Jesus. Amen, she's not one of us. She needs to quiet it down. She needs to go away. But this woman does not go away. Look there at verse 25. She comes closer to Jesus and she kneels down. Friends, she's assuming a posture of worship before the son of David. So she may not know everything there is to know about Jesus, but she knows enough to have called him by his right title of authority. And she knows that whoever he is, he's more than a mere man. So even in the face of Jesus' silence, what must have seemed like an initial refusal, she begs him for mercy again. Lord, help me. A little bit later, we're going to come back to that cry of help, the woman's cry, and we're going to unpack it. But right now, I just want to stick with what Jesus says to her in response. Because first he says nothing. Then he tells the woman, yeah, I've come from my own people, Israel. But in the face of her persistence, what does he say now? Look at verse 26. He says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow, right? Uh, Jesus, that's insulting. Dog. I mean, how would you respond if somebody called you a dog? I mean, I know on my best days when somebody insults me, you know, it's kind of, well, bless their hearts, I'll pray for them, you know, that kind of thing. And on my worst days, you know, we, well, we're not going to talk about that right now. When somebody insults you, how do you respond? Friends, Jesus is calling this woman and her people dogs who don't deserve the same treatment as God's children, the nation of Israel. The, the salvation he's bringing, it's, it's not so much for outsiders like you. That's what he just said. Why would he say that? 
I think this is one of those situations where somebody says words that could be interpreted as insulting, but like if you were there, the way they said it and the facial expressions would probably make really clear that it's not meant to be insulting. I can see in my mind Jesus looking at this woman, recognizing her desperation, already being moved with compassion towards her, knowing what she's going to ask for perfectly, having every intent to give her what she's about to ask for, but at the same time wanting to use this situation to help her and to help his disciples understand some things about themselves and about him. So with compassion and clarity, he is teaching. He's teaching his disciples. He's showing them they've still not really understood who he is and why he had come and for whom he had come. And he's also teaching the woman by testing her. He he wants to help her to see if she really did believe that he was who she had just said he was. And, And if she really had come in utter dependence and humility, would she stay? Would she persist? Would she continue to listen? So given what Jesus just called her, the woman's response here just blows my mind. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord. Yeah, she just agreed with what Jesus just said. He called her a dog, and she does not offer an objection. Friends, that's humility. It's, it's like she doesn't care about the insult. She, she, she doesn't care. She's with the Jewish Messiah. She knows she's from the unclean pagans up north. It just doesn't affect her because she knows that what she needs from Jesus is just way bigger than any prideful anger that she might be feeling over some perceived insult. And look at 27 again. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I love that response. That's a great response. I mean, this woman's not only humble, she's apparently clever and, you know, ready to come back. It's her response here that makes me understand why Jesus basically just called her a dog and why she didn't just get angry and leave. I think that Jesus, as the great teacher here, is almost egging her on like a coach, working with a player, thinking, come on, you're you're almost there. Come on, keep going. Doesn't her response, I, I know this may sound strange, but doesn't her response here almost seem a little playful? Like there's this back and forth going on here? I can see Jesus, when he calls her a dog, almost, almost unable to contain a little smile, knowing what's about to happen, and the woman beginning to realize, I think I see what he's doing here, and beginning to realize that the son of David was, was just about to say yes to her request, that she was actually going to get what she came for. I can just see all of a sudden this feeling of joyful boldness come out of here and say, well, yeah, but, but even the dogs, Jesus. And, and just Jesus rejoicing in his heart as she gives voice to her understanding of who he is and gives voice to her faith in him. I love this conversation between them. Meanwhile, I'm guessing Jesus' disciples were feeling pretty foolish. Because I bet at the beginning of this conversation, they're thinking, yeah, Jesus, put this crazy, screaming pagan woman in her place. But now, now they're probably feeling foolish. Foolish for having scorned this woman as though she and her needs were were beneath them. Foolish for having thought their Lord was as selfish as they were. Foolish for having thought they were somehow special, that their master cared only for them and about people from Israel. 
And yet in his mercy, according to his timing and providence, the Lord would use just this kind of conversation to teach and prepare these disciples for the evangelistic ministry he had for them after his death and resurrection and ascension. He is teaching them because they will have a job to do after he goes back to be with the Lord. So Christian, I want to ask you, how well do you know Jesus as your teacher? I think we would all acknowledge Jesus is a great teacher. I'm asking you, how well do you know him as your teacher? Like, How well do you understand and believe that Jesus has a lot to teach you as you are growing in holiness, growing in love? And, and are you humble and ready to be taught by the Lord? What would your daily Bible reading habits indicate in answer to those questions? And are you prepared for the fact that at times the Lord may have to teach you some things about yourself and about himself, and that he may have to do so through some difficult conversations with him? I don't know if you've experienced that as a Christian. I trust you have. Difficult conversations with the Lord. Where, where we pour out our hearts to him in prayer. And then through his word, whether personal times in the word or from the pulpit, he then reminds us of things that he has taught us from his word. And sometimes he reminds us of things that might be hard for us to hear. Well, brothers and sisters, are you listening to the Lord's teaching? Do you trust the Lord in the journey of sanctification that he is leading you on through the power and through the wisdom of his word. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus does, he's not just a teacher, he is the teacher. He's the word of God incarnate. He knows everything about you, about him, about the world he created. Only Jesus can instruct you perfectly. And praise God, he's the teacher, but he is the good teacher. He loves you. And if you doubt that, friends, he has demonstrated that to you at the cross of Christ. His instruction is always for your good. So, Christian, humble yourself before the Lord and his word. Listen to him as he speaks to you in your daily Bible readings, as he speaks to you through sermons or through Sunday school or devotionals or Bible studies. Listen to him as he speaks his word to you through good, wise, and loving counsel from your brothers and sisters. And friends, as you listen, pray that he'll work in you a greater trust in him and, and wherever it is he's going to lead you through his teaching. So friends, we've seen in this woman's words and in her actions that Jesus is the Messiah. And we have seen that he is a great, be a great teacher. Friends, he is even more than those things. And that brings us to point number three. Point number three, Jesus is the great healer. Jesus is the great healer. I want you to look back with me a couple of verses from where we left off. Look back at verse 25. So rewind a little bit. This desperate woman, she meets Jesus' silence and then his seeming refusal, and she cries out, Lord, help me. Friends, isn't that the most basic cry that we need to regularly be crying out to the Lord? Whatever the details are, 
in your specific circumstances in your life right now? What do we most need from the Lord right now? We need his help. We need his help. We need him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And friends, that means we need to humble ourselves before him. And this woman is a wonderful example. She's thinking about her daughter living in misery day after day. She doesn't stop asking Jesus for help. She was desperate. And she was humble. She knew she had nothing to offer. She's admitting her utter helplessness before the Lord Jesus. And she believes that he alone is the only one that's going to be able to help her. Friends, that's where we need to be. Regularly. Daily. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I, just, I want to stop here and think about that. Friends, is this what your prayer life looks like? When you go to Jesus in prayer, is there this sense of deep desperation? Do you, do you know, when you go to the Lord in prayer, do you know that you really, really don't have anything to offer him? That you cannot accomplish the many seemingly impossible things that seem like they need to happen. And friends, when you do pray, do you believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Do you believe, in other words, that he is able to help you? Do you pray believing that he wants to help you? And what about when he doesn't seem to answer? I mean, his initial response to this woman was silence. Does your sense of desperation lead you to persevere in prayer even when the first response seems to be silence? Brothers and sisters, this woman who knew very little about Jesus knew him well enough to know that he was merciful, that he was powerful, and that he would respond to her request for help. And so she kept asking. She kept crying out. She didn't worry about whether she was annoying Jesus by her requests. Matthew Henry said this uh, about this passage. There, there's a word in here which I didn't know, so I had to look it up. Uh, the word importunity. It means begging, pleading. Okay? Henry said, continued importunity, begging, pleading, may be uneasy to men, even to good men, but Christ loves to be cried after. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Christian parents, Christian parents who have children who don't yet know the Lord, so far as you can tell, whether because they're too young yet or they just don't seem interested in the Lord, Christian parents, I have to ask myself, I need to ask you, are you faithful, as this woman has been, to bring your beloved children before the Lord, and to cry out for mercy in their lives again and again and again. I mean, this woman's child was in severe spiritual danger, right? Well, brother, sister, if your son or daughter gives no evidence of having repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, are they in any less danger? They're not. And to flip that and to put it positively, how amazing would it be to see the Lord answer your earnest prayers to save your son, to save your daughter? So parents with children, 
who seem unregenerate. Friend, commit to calling out to the Lord to grant the same mercy and kindness that he's already graciously bestowed on you, right? It's not like he can't do it. Friend, pray for your children. And, and brothers and sisters of the Plate of Baptist, on Sunday nights when we gather here, you know, one thing we pray for every single time is for the children of this church that the Lord would, would pour out his mercy on them and save them. So parents here, friends, other members are gathering on Sunday evenings to pray for your children. Brothers and sisters, commit to start coming and praying with those members for your children. Friends, look down with me at verse 28. Jesus says, your, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done to you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. So Jesus was pleased to give her what she had humbly and desperately asked of him. Again, this is the kind of thing we get familiar with the Bible and we can just sort of skip past this. Where was this woman's demon-possessed daughter? Was she there? Doesn't look like it. I would assume she's back home, wherever that was. Raving, despairing, in misery. Could be miles away, and then suddenly, she's not. The demon is gone. She's better. At the mere word of Jesus, over what might have been miles of distance, this is no barrier to Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's fully human, and he is fully God, fully divine. Time, space, weather, circumstances, the so-called power of this indwelling demon made zero difference to Jesus. He spoke, and reality simply responded. Now, friends, this woman's faith is great. Jesus said so. Praise the Lord for that. There is much to be said about this woman's faith. But it's not like the woman somehow accomplished her daughter's healing by her faith or even by her prayer. No, friends, Jesus healed her daughter in response to her faith in him and in response to her prayer to him. The power to heal the girl was within him. Friends, Matthew wants us to see that this woman's faith is great, no doubt, but what he wants us to see even more than that is that the Messiah, the Son of God, the Almighty King of Kings, had come to exercise his infinite power and that he'd come to do it for all people, including an outsider, someone who didn't deserve anything good from him, somebody who was not able to offer him anything in response to his mercy and kindness. Friends, Matthew wants us to humble ourselves before Jesus and to plead with him to be merciful and to heal us. And then when he does that, to keep on healing us, to be persistent in begging Jesus for healing, even when he doesn't seem to answer right away, knowing that, just as we sang earlier, Jesus is strong and Jesus is kind. He is both. Friend, if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, I want to ask, are you seeing yourself here in this woman's story? Are you, are you seeing yourself here as being in need of God's mercy? Friend, you are, whether you realize it or not. You and I both, all of us in this room, 
everyone on planet Earth. We are in need of God's mercy because we were all created by this God, that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might find our, our purpose in life in loving and enjoying him forever. And friends, the reason we need mercy from this God is because we've rebelled against this God. We have told this God that we want nothing to do with you, that we're going to live life our way. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. I don't need you. Friends, we need mercy from this God. Because in your refusal to humble yourself and to seek him and to live your life for him and for his glory, friends, this God is loving and kind and merciful and he is also holy and he is just. And friends, he has said that there is a day coming that he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed and he's talking about this Lord Jesus. Friend, he's going to judge and you've heard of hell, it is real. You may not think so. That doesn't matter. Hell is real. Eternal judgment and punishment is real. This is bad news. The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ came to save. The first time he came 2,000 years ago, he came to save sinners who recognized their utter helplessness before him and who would come to him and cast themselves at his feet and worship him and say, Lord, help me. Those are the very people he came to save. Friend, is that you this morning? Because if that's you, he is ready. He's ready. Are you? Will you cast yourself on his mercy this morning and trust that 2,000 years ago on the cross, when he died, that was as payment for your sins? And that three days later, when he rose from the dead, that was to demonstrate God the Father's approval of that payment on your behalf. And will you trust in the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection for you? Friend, do it today. Don't wait. And Christian brothers and sisters, having walked through this whole story, do you see the amazing wisdom of Jesus Christ? Do you see the amazing sovereignty of Jesus Christ? Do you see the amazing compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at what he accomplishes through this simple conversation. Right? He's helping the woman. He's testing her faith and then rewarding her for her persistence and humbly trusting in him. He's helping the woman's daughter, healing her, and one would imagine through the mother, teaching her of his power over all of the powers of darkness in the spiritual realms. He's helping his disciples by showing them how much not like them he is. Not confused about who he is, not selfish, not ethnocentric, not easily annoyed, not prideful. He's glorifying himself by demonstrating his boundless knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his love. Friends, brothers and sisters, don't forget about you and don't forget about me. Jesus also did and said what he did here for you and for me, so that 2,000 years later, you and I would be able to learn from what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write down here. Christian, rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ. This is your Savior. This is your Lord. This is your friend. 
Just like this woman, Jesus did not have to show me mercy. He didn't have to show you mercy. We were real outsiders, spiritual outcasts, not because of ethnicity or culture or gender, but because our sin had separated us from him. We had nothing. What did we bring in our hands to Jesus? All we had was our sin and the judgment that it rightly could have brought to us. And yet on the night before Jesus died, Jesus came to his heavenly father and Jesus knelt down before his father in worship in perfect humility, perfect dependence, and cried out to him. And he asked his father to show him mercy, to let the cup of wrath that was about to be poured out on him to pass him by. And in that moment there in that garden, Jesus met silence, a terrifying silence from his father. Christian, Jesus endured God's refusal of his request for mercy there so that we might be shown mercy, that we might be healed of our sins. Brothers and sisters, behold the depth of the glory of Jesus Christ in this story, this simple story. And friend, by God's grace, through prayer, let it move you to be more faithful in trusting him. And as this woman did, crying out to him in prayer, even in those circumstances that right now are absolutely terrifying to you, that are causing you to feel absolutely helpless and desperate. Friend, especially then, come to Jesus. You know, Peter was there. Peter heard this conversation. And then later, under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, you know what Peter wrote? Cast your cares on him, because he cares for you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we confess, Lord, if we get honest with ourselves, we confess, Lord, that we are prayerless so much of the time. And God, we confess that that prayerlessness is just a reflection, Lord, of our, our lack of trust in you, combined with our own pride and thinking somehow we can manage situations ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would do the difficult work that's required to humble us. Lord, that more and more we would come to understand we can't manage anything. Lord, we can do nothing apart from your grace in us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, convict us and persuade us of that more and more. Lord, that we might get more and more humble before you. And Lord, as you increase that sense of desperation, Lord, cause us increasingly to come to you. Lord, not to the world, not to entertainment, not to our own thoughts. Lord, cause us to come to you in your word and in prayer, remembering that you care for us. Lord, that you delight to do good to your children. Cause us to believe these things, Lord, more and more. Lord, we ask that you would work these things in us by your Spirit's power for our good and for your glory. And so we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.